This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. So Facebook is not just competing with its other products and Twitter and Google and YouTube. They're competing with our sleep. They're competing with the time we want to spend with our friends and family. Um, they're competing with our dinner tables. Uh, they're competing with our education. And these, this, is, this is sort of the stakes here that, that I think are worth talking about. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, an interview show. My name's Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today's episode is going to be a conversation with Sarah Fryer. Sarah is a reporter from Bloomberg and the author of the book, No Filter. I almost said no logo. That's Naomi Klein, no filter. Uh, show guest and uh, super reader, Hallie Kanigi, put me on this book. And at first, when Hallie recommended it to me, I was like, I ain't read no book about the history of Instagram. But I read it, and it's more than that. It's actually a story of... America and our social media addiction, and in particular, the corrosive impact of Facebook as a corporation on the American democracy. And so I reached out to Sarah, and I'm really excited to have her on the show today. Sarah, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Sarah, what's your journalistic story? Like, how did you become uh, a writer at Bloomberg? So I think, I think I just love journalism as a means of learning what's going on. I was I was a very curious person, but I was never a super academic person. And I loved asking questions and figuring out uh, what was happening and then writing about it. I loved to write. And so it kind of started in high school. I realized that journalism was a career you could possibly have. And as soon as I learned that it existed, I knew I wanted to do it. Um, and I, I went to college at the University of North Carolina, which has an amazing uh, student paper. It's an independent paper uh, that was publishing daily. And so I really sharpened my skills there, became editor-in-chief of the student paper, and then joined Bloomberg after graduation. And uh, at Bloomberg, I really loved covering technology companies because I feel like when when you think about journalism as a career, you think a lot about political journalism or crime journalism, that all is so familiar to us, um, the kind of news that we read. But I think increasingly, companies are having a hold on our lives and our society equivalent to governments. And there just are fewer people holding companies accountable. And so I was very fascinated, especially by social media, because I feel like These products are products that we spend hours interacting with and um, performing for, really, without understanding the people behind them, the decisions they've made, uh, how we are being manipulated. And so I thought, especially with Instagram, I mean, this is is one of the most undertold stories in technology. And for my book, I, I think I talked to 
people who'd, who'd never spoken with a journalist. These stories, a lot of the, the tidbits in my book have never been uncovered. If I'm being honest, when somebody first told me that like, hey, Nate, there's a book about Instagram, I was like, I ain't read no book about Instagram. And then I got a chunk into it and I was like, this book about Instagram is amazing. But I think one of the reasons why the book is amazing is, is like, so yeah, the book is about Instagram, but what you're really telling is a story of Facebook. And something that this book really set up for me that I hadn't contemplated is the difference between Facebook, the service and Facebook, the corporation. And so like Facebook, the service is something that like, I think we all know is full of right wing propaganda and like I've divorced myself from it, but Facebook, the corporation is like ever present in our lives. And so I just wonder when you started writing the book, did you, were you aware that that's the story you were going to be telling or is that just my interpretation of the text? Well, I think that, that, we do. There is a difference between Facebook, the social network, and Facebook, the company. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that Instagram is owned by Facebook. And mm-hmm. and I think as reporters, we look at this this company that was acquired in 2012 by Facebook, and we see that as the end of this perfect story of you know startup grows really quickly, gets noticed, gets a big acquisition deal, but. You're right. I think that the story of Instagram within Facebook, Instagram provides a good foil for understanding what Facebook values, what Mark Zuckerberg values, and the push and pull that that it takes, the trade-offs that it takes um, to create a product that becomes so ubiquitous and powerful in our society. And with that power, what these executives tr- decide to do and, and what they decide to value. And so I, I do think that that, um, that we can't dismiss the, the power of, of Facebook or Instagram in our lives, even if we don't use these products. And, and I think your reaction to reading a book about Instagram, that's what I was worried about because I, I think people trivialize culture as yeah. as a, a force in our society. They're like, oh yeah, Kim Kardashian, like who cares? Um, in reality, these, these cultural forces are shaping how we decide to live our lives, how we decide to uh, celebrate our life milestones, where we decide to vacation, what we want to buy in terms of uh, um, you know, the, the products that we value, the way we design our homes, like all of these things are trickling down from from Instagram, really, and by extension, Facebook. So I do think it's really important to understand um, Facebook's influence on Instagram and influence Instagram's influence on us. And um, that's part of part of the hope when people read the book, they understand the gravity of it and and don't just think, oh, that's where you put your dog photos. (laughs) <laughs> I want this conversation to be accessible to people who've like read the book and also folks who like haven't read the book and also folks that like want to read the book and haven't done it yet. Um, I'm wondering, talk to me about Kevin Sinstrom. Like Sinstrom and Krieger are like the founders of Instagram. And it's interesting, like you in your writing make people who I think I would find derisible in real life actually feel sympathetic when put up against uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, talk about Sinstrom. Like, like, like what kind of cat is he? Oh man, he's he's really uh, kind of what you would would think of as like a, a very he's very diplomatic. He's very but he considers himself um, to be a lifelong learner. 
but that can come across as super pretentious. <laughs> like he, lo- he loves to have the highest quality coffee and like the highest quality pizza and the highest, like everything that he does is like the epitome of East coast, West coast hipsterdom. Um, he, he wants to ride the perfect bike. He wants to get really good at his sourdough starter. Like that's, that's who Kevin Systrom is. Um, and I think that that's reflected in the Instagram product. When you look at Instagram, it's a place where we can go to be inspired by people who are the best at what they do. And that's really how he, um, how he interprets it. Now, in contrast to, to Mark Zuckerberg, Kevin Systrom as this constant self-improver, as this, as this pursuer of, of the highest quality of something, as a converter with celebrities. He really, he really does spend a lot of time trying to get to know famous people who use Instagram. Uh, comes into Facebook, this company that that really could care less about the individual users of Facebook. They care more about the the larger idea of like, you know, are we reaching hundreds of millions of people? Are we reaching billions of people? How do we reach more billions of people? Like that's at the level that Facebook is thinking. And and Kevin Systrom comes in and he's like, well, I really want to meet with these artists and I really want to meet with these celebrities and I want to meet with the Pope and and the the general reaction from Facebook is massive eye roll. Like, like you're wasting your time because if you are speaking to the famous people on Instagram, you're not building products for everybody to use Instagram more. Um, but what Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger understood is it's important to think about the feel of the product. What what you mm what you draw from it uh, that makes you feel like Instagram is a cool place, that it's a place where you want to hang out and share and aspire to be part of the community. And a lot of their, their focus on quality, their focus on celebrities, their focus on things that to Facebook seemed totally useless, like a waste of time. Um, that's one of the reasons that we think of Instagram as an escape from Facebook, that we think of it as a place where, where we can go and be immersed in a world that is not, is not as messed up as reality. Uh, Whereas I think on Facebook, we are continually trained to, to be triggered (laughs) and angry. And, um, you know, the stuff that goes viral on Facebook is the stuff that, that, makes us emote whether it's happiness or fear or um congratulations or like you were saying earlier canceling i mean this is like the the way that these products have evolved as they scale as they grow bigger it's so fascinating to me because as i'm reading the book like Sistrom strikes me as somebody who's just like a tad too precious for my liking. <laughs> like you mentioned, like the quintessential hipster likes wants everything cute. Um, and essentially he gets caught up and like swept up in this Facebook hurricane. And I, I really liked the way that you kind of broke down the bidding process for Facebook and about how, uh, sorry, for, for bidding process for Instagram and how uh, Jack from Twitter was basically in on trying to purchase Instagram and then basically got his feelings hurt and then like broke up with Instagram kind of publicly. Uh, how 
am I to understand or how do you navigate like these three characters? Because essentially like in the book, the the, the main person that begins a system ends up being Zuckerberg and like Jack is kind of woven in and out. Like how do you compartmentalize these three figures in your head? Like how do you view each one of them? I think that nothing happens in a vacuum. I, I have mm. read a lot of books about CEOs that are told as a sort of hero's journey where usually it's a, a white guy has a great idea struggles to get funding for it, finally gets funding for it, struggles to help it grow, finally helps it grow, you know, has an amazing success despite all the obstacles. And then the conclusion of the book is like, here's how you could be successful just like this guy. And, and I think that that's just not how the world works. I think that the way that the technology industry works, it's a, it's a, it's a personality driven network. I mean, like Zuckerberg is very intent on on growth at all costs. Jack Dorsey is very intent on on you know creating this window into different worlds. Uh, mm. System is very intent on creating a place for creatives, and and I think that their personalities trickle down into the products that they create. And I think that Dorsey, Jack Dorsey, and Kevin System were seem to be very similar in the early days where Jack was also, he was also kind of an artistic floaty person, very philosophical guy, um, more sensitive, I think, than, than Zuckerberg uh, in some ways. And, and I think that he thought of Kevin Systrom as like someone he could mentor and somebody that he could, um, you know, invest in. Like a lot of people were, um, telling Jack Dorsey that he couldn't be a manager. He got kicked out from his, the company he founded, uh, Twitter. Of course, he was later reinstated, and he's now the CEO of two companies. But at the time, uh, there were a lot of doubts. And, and Kevin Systrom comes to him and says, hey, I'm working on this new thing. Do you want to be an angel investor? And suddenly, Dorsey is flattered and says, of course, like let me help you because no one's ever asked me for money before. Uh, you actually want my advice. And, and I think that that theme throughout the book is really interesting to me, how these men are, are trying to appear successful, uh, trying to uh, fill the need for their egos to be stroked, right? Like, and, and when, when Kevin gives Jack the opportunity to invest. Like that's a moment for Dorsey where he feels like, wow, like I've really kind of made it here. And then Instagram, Instagram um, grows in part because Jack Dorsey is backing it so, so intensely. And then um, when Mark Zuckerberg starts to flatter Kevin Systrom by saying, I want to buy you for a billion dollars. Like that's flattery that Jack couldn't compete with. I mean, Kevin's looking at Mark as like his path to success. And, and then um, that's also, you know, it's, it's not just a, a land of robots trying to make money. And by the end of the book, you realize that Mark Zuckerberg is also an emotional ego driven person. It's not just about oh, the data. Sure. It's about success. It's about 
being the guy, being the one who wins. And, and he ends up being threatened by Instagram just as, as, uh, which is so crazy because he owns it, but he ends up being threatened by the fact that Instagram could eclipse Facebook's popularity. So I think that the way I think about these characters is like, these are all people pushing and pulling each other in a jostling Mm. to be taken seriously, to be considered successful, to be um, recognized for their visions. And I think that that's what we're all kind of striving for as a society, as we post on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, it's about our validation. It's about other people considering what we are doing to be interesting and worth listening to. Um, So I think that, that, I don't know if I would say I'm, I'm, I was trying to humanize, it, humanize them, but that's what ended up happening, I think, as I learned more about these people and why they did what they did. I feel like a recurring theme in my life is, is that like I take this like incremental or like small aspirationally like woke or progressive or like thoughtful maneuver. And then it's proved to me fairly immediately afterwards that like what I did wasn't worth anything. And so... I nuked my Facebook account back in like 2011 and then I got back on God knows why at some point. Um, and then I nuked it again about two weeks before I picked up your book. And something that I've always struggled with is, is like, so I live overseas and the way I communicate with people overseas is we use, we, we, we WhatsApp like crazy, like everybody WhatsApps, like particularly in the middle East, you send WhatsApp voice messages to people to give directions and conversations. Every time I, op- I open WhatsApp, it says WhatsApp by Facebook. Every time I open Instagram, it says Instagram by Facebook. And every time I open them, I'm like, damn it. So like I got off Facebook, the network, but I'm still shoveling cash towards Facebook Corporation. And a fact that caught me like across the face in your book is, is you talked about like the, like the, what the largest growing aspect of Facebook Corporation's profits are ads and revenue from Instagram. Mm -hmm. And so. Folks like myself who were like, well, I'm not going to be on Facebook, like, sure, that harms Facebook, the social network, but does nothing to harm Facebook, the corporation, because they're still sucking our data out of Instagram. So I, I, I say all that to kind of ask about you personally. So so knowing what you know and knowing how you cover these corporations, like, how do you engage in social media, like, personally and, like, as a professional? Like, I, okay, so, so, so here, I think Mark Zuckerberg sucks. And I think that Facebook is evil, but like I was on it forever. I, I, I think that through your reporting, you kind of demonstrate that your beliefs may be similar. How do you navigate the space? I think that boycotting these platforms, you, you got to do what you need to do to keep in touch with the people in your life that matter. You got to do what you need to do to yeah. run your business, right? You got a podcast, so you need to promote it. Like those are, this. these products are part of the infrastructure of our society and we shouldn't feel guilty for participating in society. However, what I want to accomplish with my book is help people understand the, the motivations that are instilled in us through the metrics that these products measure. So like on Instagram, think about it. You are posting because you want comments. You're posting because you want likes. You're posting because you want to increase your follower count. And everyone else is too. So when you're on Instagram, and you're comparing yourself, and this is the harm that comes from Instagram. You you see your life compared to someone else's life, and you think, my life could be more interesting, my life could be more beautiful, I could be more beautiful, and that's the 
the self-consciousness that comes with it. And that's the, uh, the mental health issues that come with the anxiety that come with Instagram and, and every product has a different effect. Like Facebook, I think I talked about the, the emotional, emotionally triggering posts, um, are the ones that do well on Facebook. So what I hope that my book does is, is break down these ways that we are measured, these, these aims that we are, uh, using these products for, and, and we can then sort of detach ourselves from that pressure and also understand why we may be doing the things that we're doing. Um, mm. I, I am influenced by Instagram, Twitter, Facebook in ways that sometimes I didn't even realize. Like, I love Australian shepherd dogs. <laughs> I think they're the cutest. Okay. And then I was reading okay. this article the other day that says, that breed has become a lot more popular because the patchy colors photograph really well on Instagram. I was like, holy, oh my gosh, is that why I love Australian Shepherds? Like, I, it's hard to disentangle ourselves from the incentives that are baked into these products. But I, I'm hoping sure. to kind of like lift the curtain on it um, so that you realize, okay, if this person looks amazing in their selfies, Maybe it's because they're using Facetune to smooth out their complexions. Maybe it's because they're, uh, you know, using using filters that I didn't didn't realize. Um, maybe this person has this many followers because because they're they're purchasing them, or because they're part of one of the one of the follower networks where everyone. I, I mean, there's so many groups on Facebook where you can say, "Hey, let's all follow each other on Instagram to boost the number." This this world appears to be a meritocracy, but it's not. Mm. In the book, you talked a lot about some of the dilatorious social side effects of Instagram and like Instagram culture. Uh, of those like dilatorious of, of those like like side effects that are happening and having negative negative impacts, which one is the one that like struck you the most? Where you were like, "Damn, that's really happening to society." I think I think the thing that really resonated with me is this idea that we are all measuring ourselves and in mm -hmm. measuring ourselves, um, subtly changing our actual behavior in the real world to conform to what we think will perform well in the social media world. And, and I think that that's, some people are overtly doing that. Some people are more subtly doing that. Um, but I think the fact that each and every one of us has become like a strategic content curator, highly conscious of our shortcomings or the places that we can improve because every time we post, we get a score. That's, that's mm -hmm. what the comments are. That's what the likes are. Those they're like scoring, whether this post was good for people. And when you look at that score and say, well, you know, I got a higher score for this post than that post you're going to do more of the things that lead to the higher scoring posts. You're going to post more selfies because those perform better. You maybe you're going to post with more cleavage because that performs better. You're maybe going to, you know, all these things that you do um, in your life. It's, it's not like we're, we're all trying to be influencers, but we are all trying, we are all self-conscious as a society by, by nature. And we all know um, that we crave that digital validation and therefore will change our behavior 
And it, when you look, when you walk around, um, maybe not so much in pandemic times, but in in the <laughs> normal world, when you walk around, you can see the impact of Instagram in a way that you can't as easily see the impact of of Facebook and Twitter. You can see people curating their lives. I remember sitting at a restaurant in New York and this woman ordered all the most colorful food on the menu and then stood up on her chair as she arranged it beautifully for photography and then took a ton of, of selfies with the food with her friends. And by the time these these friends got around to having their brunch together, I was like, are your waffles soggy now? Like this is, <laughs> this is what you're, this is what you're valuing as opposed to the time with your friends. So I, I just think we need to be conscious of that. And then once we understand um, how we are being manipulated, then we can, we can take charge of our decisions and figure out what we want to use these platforms for going back to what you were saying, Nate, about connection. Like we need these, especially as we have been, you know, trying to avoid in-person indoor gatherings uh, with the spread of the virus, we need these platforms now in a way that we haven't before. And, and that's, that's really what strikes me. I had to stop with the book for a moment and Google what the hell a Brazilian butt lift was. <laughs> Because like that's that was one of the elements in the book. I'm like, wait, people are doing what? Like I, I, when you say that people are curating their lives in order to make them more photogenic, I think immediately is about like the arms race of food plating at restaurants and how like every plate of food that comes out is way sexier now than it used to be. Like that's a really apparent example for me. All right, so we're gonna take a break here, and when we come back. Uh, I want to dig into Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, and like their role in this Instagram controversy, Instagram like purchase, and and also like his role in distorting democracy. So we'll be back. This is Doug Mackey, producer of the Channel Two Five Three Podcast Network. This episode of Channel Two Five Three is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. Your student can go to college just about anywhere in the world, but have you thought about the school just down the street? When it comes to their undergraduate programs, PLU is a triple threat. First, PLU has a great liberal arts program that will expand young minds and help them thrive no matter where they go after leaving our campus. Second, PLU is part of the Tacoma and South Sound community, passing on the values of civic engagement to the next generation. And finally, PLU has programs that will prepare students for some of the most important and high-demand careers post-graduation. Liberal arts, civic engagement, and professional studies. A triple threat that will help your student thrive. To learn more, visit plu.edu admission. Now back to the show. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. We are a network of podcasts based in the South Sound, giving you stories that you won't hear anywhere else. If you are enjoying this show or enjoying our other shows, like We Are Tacoma, The Interchangeable White Ladies, Crossing Division, or We Are Tacoma, I'm going to ask you, please go to channel253.com slash membership and join us. A membership is $4 a month or $40 a year, and your membership makes this work happen. 
In addition, we have a new sponsorship this episode. Uh, we are now partnering with Libro.fm. Uh, Libro is a service that provides audiobooks. Essentially, if you've ever heard of Amazon's Audible service, imagine if Audible wasn't run by awful people. Uh, Libro.fm is a uh, bookselling service that sells audiobooks. They have a plan that you can sign up for and get one book a month. It's $15 a month, and you basically get a credit, and you can buy a book each month. Uh, if you use the promo code Tacoma or go to Libro.fm slash redeem slash Tacoma and sign up for your first month, they'll give you two books. And if I'm keeping it 100, I listen to this book on Libro, and you should too. All right, Sarah, let's get back to this. <sighs> I feel like I'm dancing around like the point I really want to have you address. And so I'm just going to go there. I'm increasingly convinced that Mark Zuckerberg is a monster and is contributing to the demise of the Republican democracy for a host of different reasons. In addition, in reading this, like what really came became, well, actually, first off, first off, uh, on the monster scale, would you put him on, where would you put him on the monster scale? Let's start with that first. <laughs> I still got to cover this company, but Listen, I think that Mark Zuckerberg, the, the thing that I, that I learned in this reporting and in covering this company yeah. for years and years and years, this is a person who cares about power, about domination, about yeah. growth, and as the, as the top most important thing. And as, as people like me in the media have brought up all the things that that are holes, blind spots, or maybe not even blind spots, but things that Facebook is, is consciously negligent in addressing. Um, mm. The company is unlikely to make these changes unless there's a public uproar about them. And, and I think that I'm that's- I'm putting you down for a six on the monster scale, by the way. It's a six on the monster scale. I'm just putting that down. <laughs> Sarah says six. All right. And, you were saying- And I just- I. I think it's so transparent at this point. Uh, you know, yeah. Facebook says, oh, this doesn't go against our rules. And then somebody writes about it and they say, well, actually, we did find that it goes against our rules. Like they're constantly responding to problems only when there's public pressure around them. And that's because when you are creating a product that is used by I mean, if you count Instagram and WhatsApp and Messenger, if you are creating a company whose products are used by more than 3 billion people, this is, this is the vast majority of the world's internet connected population. Sure. And your focus is on adding more people to that number and not on making sure that the people that you are serving are being served well. Um, that's a recipe for, for some toxic stuff. 6.5 on the monster scale. Uh, so here's the thing is that like when I was reading about Sinstrom, there were many, uh, many like moments in the book where Sinstrom was being asked by Facebook to do something that to him betrayed what he wanted Instagram to be. Like he had, and maybe this is what I found endearing about him. He had this like vision of what he wanted the product to be. It's a very precious vision. Uh, Zuckerberg's the opposite. Like I feel like Mark Zuckerberg would take his own mother, my mother, your mother, Doug, Doug's mother, and set them on fire uh, if it would help the share price of Facebook. And like I can't help but like like throughout the book, and I just kept returning to this theme, like all the ways in which like well actually no, there's a very specific example you gave. You talked about how 
essentially Facebook has privacy violation after privacy violation, and there's a big uproar when they happen, and then things die down. And so basically they have baked into their operations that like they're going to F up on privacy and their users are going to forgive them and like they're not going to pay any long-term consequences. Yeah. At, 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 at what point do, do, do we wake up to this? Like, like how, how can we continue down this road? Like how is, is all this it, happening still? This is still? not a new crisis, right? Facebook has been apologizing about privacy slip-ups for 14 years. Um, Go ahead and preach. And and I think that this is just how the company operates. It's not that they that they don't know about these problems. It's that they're not looking for them. They're, they mm. don't have an infrastructure, especially for Instagram. They don't have an infrastructure to look for the dark spots before they become big problems. And And I think that that's harmful. That's harmful to us as users because we are depending on these products to inform us, to connect us with our with the most important people in our lives, to run our businesses in many cases. I mean, that's the thing about Instagram. That's where people where people are becoming entrepreneurs, building their businesses, and the incredible amount of power that Instagram has over those businesses um we don't question it enough. It's essentially like you are building your store where you don't own the land or the shop or, you know, it could be taken away from you at any time. It could be, uh, it could be completely changed that your, your store could be completely redesigned and, and you wouldn't have any say in it. And, and I think that this is, this is the part where we need to say, here's what we want and ask for it because um, right now the only signal or the biggest signal, I should say, not the only signal, but the biggest signal that Facebook is getting to change its product is from user behavior, right? They're looking at the mm -hmm. data. They're saying, well, we made this change and it made people click 0.3% more. Therefore it was a good change and people like it over and over. Facebook looks at, our behavior and says, well, if there's more of it, if it's more frequent, if it's causing more people to join, it's good. And I think that that logical leap of more equals good is a very Zuckerbergian way of thinking about it and a very capitalist way of thinking about it. And it's not borne out by, by the facts because in, in any physical industry, there are limited resources, right? You can't just pump oil forever. You'll run out of oil. You have to space it out. You have to figure it out. But human attention is the resource that Facebook is tapping. And the, the finite resource is our willingness to give it. And so Facebook is not just competing with, with, um, it's other products and Twitter and Google and YouTube. They're competing with our sleep. They're competing with the time we want to spend with our friends and family. Um, they're competing with our dinner tables. Uh, they're competing with, with our educations. And these, this is, this is sort of the stakes here that, that I think are worth talking about. That's a really profound way of putting it. The like, the social media companies aren't just competing with themselves, they're competing 
with everything in our lives because every time we make a choice about looking at our phone, that means we're turning something else off. That's, hmm. Well, I'm depressed now. Thanks for that. Um, the way that I became aware of your book was that I was on a rant about social media algorithms. And for context, I think the reason why I enjoy Twitter more than other social media uh, like outlets is, uh, is that like social, is that Twitter is still a timeline? Like you have the option to put your Twitter feed chronologically instead of like getting forced by the algorithm. Both Instagram and Facebook have moved to an algorithm. Help me understand, make me, make me smarter about why these algorithms, why companies choose the algorithms and why they're so addictive. Well, in Instagram's case, they had a big problem, which is that there were professional users of Instagram and there are the, the, the people that you wanted to actually hear from, your friends and family. Hmm. Uh, and, and the professionals were very good at being strategic. They knew exactly what time of day to post. They knew what kind of content to post. And they would post a lot more frequently and what that would do is make us, when we were looking at Instagram and scrolling through and seeing all the beautiful you know, posts from brands and influencers, we were then internalizing that the stuff that we were doing in our everyday life was not up to the level, right? Like, I'm not going to post a photo of my cat being dumb if, like, I follow the most amazing cat accounts I don't have a cat, but that's an example. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think what Instagram saw, again, in the data, or the usage data, is that regular people were not posting that much because they felt so much pressure. And mm. in fact, they were second-guessing themselves. Um, teen, teens were like sharing posts with their friends before they posted and saying like, Hey, is this like, which selfie is better? If I post this right now, will you guys comment on it? Like, I don't know. I feel anxious about this. Like people were feeling super anxious. So, um, so what they decided to do with the algorithm is tailor it so that they would show you posts that would make you feel like it was okay to post because ultimately what Instagram needs is more slots to put ads in. And if you're not posting, there's not enough content for ads to be slotted in between. Does that make sense? Mm. So like they only no, want to sure, they sure. only want to put ads like every four or five posts. But if your friends aren't posting enough, those are going to be all like posts from from brands and stuff. So anyway, it was really important to them that they got you to post more. So that's why they introduced Instagram stories and that's why they introduced the algorithm. Now on Facebook, the algorithm they say is because there are thousands of potential things they could show you from your, mm -hmm. from your friends and family. People on Facebook aren't just posting images. They're posting links, they're posting videos, they're sharing other people's posts and Facebook wants to show you the stuff that matters most. The problem is the way that they are judging what matters most is where they see that engagement. What matters most is what are people commenting on? What are people clicking on? And the things that people tend to comment on and click on are the most incendiary things. Those are the things sure. that get us riled up, that we react to. 
And so if you're scrolling through through Facebook, you're more likely to be shocked by something that's false, <laughs> right? Because there just aren't that many shocking things in the world. But if you see, I mean, there maybe there are in the last few years, let's, let's be honest. But <laughs> but if you if you see something that's like, vaccines don't work and you need to you need to see you know i have this personal story about how my hand just twitched when you said that my hand twitched like i, I like I, it makes total sense sorry keep going yeah like, literally you anti-vax like, stuff like, you know what your doctor's not telling you about vaccines and you got a new baby and you're like well shit i i need to know what the doctor hasn't been telling me about these vaccines and you click on it and you're like holy I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, this is crazy. I want other people to know this, but it's not true. Vaccines are totally safe, yeah. but nobody's going to post the, hey, by the way, just in case you guys didn't know, vaccines are totally safe. Why would anyone post that? Unless it goes against the the common knowledge. So, so that's kind of like the danger with the Facebook algorithm. People are only going viral with things that are surprising, that are shocking, that are against the common knowledge. People aren't posting things that are just what we understand to be true. Like, you know, climate change is real. Like that's kind of understood, right? Like the, the status quo is people kind of agree that this is a thing that's happening, but it's more salacious to post like the things they aren't telling you about climate change. In fact, the science is bunk, but you know, we're being misled by that yeah. stuff. Yeah, I, I've, I've, when I got off of Facebook, I caught myself about to hate, well, no, I'd already hate click something and I was about to argue with somebody. So, okay, really fast, story you don't care about, but here's here's my, my, my example. Like my last moment on Facebook was the white lady that played piano at my mom's church uh, back in the 80s was posting a photo of Greta Thunberg standing next to uh, George Soros that talked about how Thunberg's Thunberg was Soros's grandfather or granddaughter and like I was going to go explain that to her and then I was like wait what am I doing with my time this is not what I need in my life I'm off this platform but then when forever you're, when you're posting right? on that post you are creating an interaction that will alert your friends yeah. that you posted on that post which then increases the distribution of that post so the, these debates that we're having on the Facebook posts are actually helping spread them too. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's a recent example of this, the real world harm from this kind of thing is the, the fires on the West coast. Yeah. The rumors that were spread on Facebook, that these fires were started by vigilantes from Antifa. Um, and this this spread all over Facebook and was, was escalating to the point that people were like, Oh my God, I can't believe that people would come out and destroy our communities just to make a point. Like, this is awful. Like you, know, my family is in danger. Um, I can't breathe the air. Like we need to stop this. Um, and people were legitimately concerned may still be concerned. And the FBI and the local authorities came out and said, please stop calling us about this. This is not what started the fires. Can you, can you not overload law enforcement with these calls that are based on false information? Because we're actually trying to save people's lives and we need real tips on where people are stranded. And we need real 
information on, you know, who needs help right now. And so Facebook finally did start removing those false claims about who was starting the fires, but it had already become deeply entrenched in, um, in the conversation by then. And at that point, it's very difficult to stop an idea. I think we're beyond the argument, does social media or is social media making us stupider? Like, I, I, I think that, like, societally, we're beyond that argument. Like, I, I certainly have been in from social media and interactions and gotten smarter, more formal issues. But I think on the whole, social media is making us stupider. I guess my question is, and thinking about the 2016 election and 2020 coming up is, is are we reaching a point of no return when the amount of misinformation and disinformation that's like being disseminated on a daily basis is like permanently altering America and like what it is. Like there's an entire faction, like you mentioned, uh, entire faction of Americans. And like, this isn't like 10 people or 30 people or thousands of people, like millions of people who think anti-fascists set fires on the West coast. And that's where there's fires. Like at, at what point is the damage that's being done to us societally permanent or like ir- or I, I, like you know I'm going with this like like yeah. is is there a, is there a point of no return with this I think that there's always room for people to become more educated and understand what but but here's here's the problem these products are for passive consumption when you're scrolling through your Facebook, you're not researching who started the fires on the West Coast. You're not looking for that information. It comes to you. And that is what makes it so easily able to seep things into our brains that are not true. Um, I think about like the stuff that uh, you know, my mom's very smart, but she would listen to daytime television when I was growing up. <laughs> and it just, you know, around the house and I'm a kid and, and, sh- and, you know, on daytime television, they would say things like, well, coffee's good for you. Coffee's bad for you. Um, and I remember yeah. like little things that, that she would learn and be like, Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that, that carrots had so much sugar in them. And so I was thinking my whole life, like carrots are really full of sugar. And, <laughs> you know, it's not until you actually go out and are like, Googling, are these carrots full of sugar? And you realize, no, they're not. They're, they're actually good for you. But, but I think that the way that we absorb information passively is very different than if we're actually going to try to, to find it out. So I think that, that one thing we could do is when we see things on social media that is shocking or terrifying or makes me even, I even have to like, there's so much stuff that, that makes me angry right now in the world, but I have to check myself, like try not to share a meme until you know, this is based on, on actuality. Even if it reinforces things that you know to be true, it may not be true and you may be part of the problem. Mm. So, so I think that the, the, the systems as currently designed by Facebook are broken. Um, because it, they don't ask us to question any of these things and they make it so easy. The barrier to sharing, the barrier to retweeting, the barrier to commenting on something is so low intentionally because the more engagement that occurs on these platforms, the more money they make. Um, and they're doing whatever they can to remove barriers to 
to spreading information to so, so I think that that when you hear Facebook say, oh, well, you know, we're we're all about free speech. We just want people to be able to speak openly in 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 a society that is all where there's a marketplace of ideas. So I went to journalism school. We were learning about the marketplace of ideas. Um, as long as there's transparency, as long as there are uh, a plethora of ideas from different uh, sources in the marketplace, then people can choose for themselves like, oh, this is the idea I believe. Um, and most people theoretically will choose the one that is that is true. Um, but the way that Facebook works is not a marketplace of ideas. You don't see the things that are not on your feed. And what's shown on your feed is the stuff that is supposed to uh, make you click and comment more. So we've placed Mark Zuckerberg on the monster scale at a 6.5. And we've talked about like social media algorithms and their addictive behavior. The kind of last place I want to go is 2020. So after 2016 and for like the last three years, we've kind of like processed all the ways in which social media like was manipulated in order to get the result in the White House. Like I think my favorite example or like least favorite example, honestly, is the like at Tennessee GOP account, which was created by a Russian troll farm and like engaged with me on social media. Actually, I remember like being attacked by that Twitter account for what it's worth. Wow. So. As, over the last three years, like we've 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 unpacked and talked about and, and kind of have learned and discovered all the ways in which we were manipulated in 2016. I'm wondering, as somebody who like covers this and is plugged in, in 2022 and 2023, what are the manipulations that you're seeing happening right now that reporters who aren't on your level are going to be discovering and covering? I think that it's not the foreign election interference that we need to worry about anymore. It's the domestic. Everyone has learned from the Russia tactics and they are running campaigns domestically to try and um, do the same kind of like infusing within a certain ideology, getting people of that ideology to, to switch to your side. Uh, I think that's something that we've seen happen in the U.S. and we've seen, seen happen in other countries. And furthermore, we've seen that these, these government leaders who were elected in part because of their prominence on Facebook and their ability to build an audience on Facebook are using Facebook against their people. Um, they are, they are um, very good at using the platform to spread propaganda and spread... Um, the things that help them stay in power. So I think that the conversation is going to shift from a, uh, okay, how are we being manipulated by this foreign government to how are we being manipulated by our own governments around the world? You've been tweeting a bit about bots, but I haven't seen any reporting come out like to accompany those tweets. Do you have a story about bots on social media and bots in elections that you want to uh, tease to the audience, mayhaps? Oh, yeah. I mean, basically, the, the story I wrote this week is that Facebook has the technology to stop bots from logging in and commenting and liking and clicking on ads and, and posts, but they don't. Um, they only stop 
bots at the point of account creation. Um, so if you're trying to create a new bot, it's hard. But if you are just a bot in existence, or if you turn a regular account into a bot, um, then you can be, you can slide by undetected. Um, I think that that there are there are a lot of problems with just this this way that Facebook has decided to address the the issues they've created. Um, they're creating a info center for voting, an info center for COVID-19, and an info center for climate. But I'm going to hate all three of these. I can tell already. I'm going to hate all three of these. You know, the info centers aren't bad, but the problem is what I was discussing earlier. When you use social media, you're using it passively. You're not mm. always going to go to an info center because do you really, are you there to be informed? No, you're there to be entertained. You're there to pass yeah. the, you know, three minutes before the bus comes or the two minutes before somebody calls you back. Those are the segments of our lives that we spend on social media. And, um, and I think that until we learn to be a lot more intentional about why we are using the products, what we're trying to get out of it, and how we are being manipulated, and being aware of that manipulation and um, how it's affecting our friends and family. I mean, I talked to so many people who's, who's, who know very smart, lovely people in their lives who have fallen into internet rabbit holes um, and can't be convinced otherwise. Um, but I think if we understand how these products work, then we can be empowered to to change how we interact with them, despite the incentives that the products bring to us. And it's not our fault, it's their fault, but that's <laughs> the least we can do. I'm feeling convicted about this. Like I was sitting down today to watch the trailer for the new James Bond movie and then like realized halfway through the trailer, I was looking at my phone and I'm like, I couldn't make it through a trailer that was two minutes and 47 seconds long without looking at my phone. Like I'm, I'm the monster who I'm criticizing right now. Uh, I want to ask one final question, and this comes from a perennial show guest and the person who turned me on to this book, Hallie Kanigi. Hallie shouts to you. Uh, what's the worst case scenario for the near future for all of this? Like what, what, what scares you? Where does this, if we don't get our head around the way in which we're becoming addicted to social media and the ways in which social media is manipulating opinions, like what's the, the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is already happening. And it's that... Damn. <laughs> it's that in in this this social media fueled universe the the great thing is that we all have more personal choice than ever about what kind of media we want to consume. You and I can be on the same couch and you can be watching your James Bond trailer and I can be watching TikTok videos and and we all we all have our own that means we all have our own celebrities. We all have our own media that we'd like to consume. We all have our own people we follow, voices we listen to, and therefore our own versions of reality. And so if we all have a different version of reality, some wildly different, how can we agree on solutions to any societal problems? We don't have a shared truth. And I think that is the the most dangerous there's no shared truth 
Truth is an opinion now. Ugh. Ugh. I hate to end like that. God, dog. Um, we, we end the show with a thing called... Here, hold this L. Hold this L. Hold uh, this L. Cancel culture is not real, but some folks out there need to be told to shut the hell up sometimes. And so, Sarah, I'm wondering, uh, who would you like to have hold an L for a little bit? Oh, my God. You know... I think everyone, everyone needs to just like cool it for a sec. <laughs> just like everyone for a second. I'm not saying we all need to be canceled. Just saying we all need to take a second and think right. about where we're getting our information, about how we're evaluating that information. We also need to give each other a break because, like, this is a it's been a hard. I mean, I'm on the West Coast. It's been a hard year, right? Got COVID. You got fires. You got, um, you know, people are losing their jobs. People are uh, losing their loved ones. And I think, I think it's really important right now to just say, like, people have a lot of emotion happening in their in their hearts and minds, and give each other a break. Not everyone that's freaking out is freaking out because of you. Um, not everyone that's, that's spewing crazy talk is spewing crazy talk because of you. And it's not your responsibility to solve all of the problems of society. Uh, and you, you really can't. So I, I think like everyone needs to just, my husband's been off Twitter for four days now. He's feeling way happier. That is some Zen master stuff right there. Uh, so the funny thing is, is we typically end the show by asking the guest where can people find them on the socials, but I don't want to ask you that right now. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> but I'll I'm make on sure. the socials. It's my job. <laughs> it's kind of. Okay, fine. So where can people find you on the socials and find your reporting in Bloomberg? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm Sarah Fryer, uh, same handle across the socials and uh, Bloomberg and Business Week is where most of my stuff comes up. All right. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, you came with some really great and sobering takes. Uh, I'm left with a lot to reflect on personally, and I think hopefully audience members are, will be as well. Uh, if you listen to this interview and haven't read uh, No Filter, check it out. Like, it's a really great read. Like, don't get scared off by the fact it's a book about Instagram. It's a book about so much more, and you can pick it up on Libro and listen to it like I did. So, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nate. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. This is Doom, and, like, here's how you all to, like, gird yourselves for Doom. And I just, there was some, like, some some Yoda Jedi in there, and I just appreciate (laughs) it so much. Thank you. Like, 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 I appreciate it so much. Thank you. (laughs) Appreciate it. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.